This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. For those listening with kids, this episode includes language about some things you may not be ready for them to hear, so I would recommend earphones if that's the case. Welcome to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica, and my guest today is Mary DeMuth. She's an incredible writer who has been a voice on the forefront of the Me Too and Church Too conversations in the past couple of years. Mary has been writing about sexual abuse for years, but it wasn't until recently that she says people really started listening. Her story isn't an easy one. She was brutally sexually abused over a long period of time as a five-year-old and has carried those scars with her for a lifetime. While Mary has been on a healing journey for many years now, she knows many people are in the midst of their own. Today, we talk about what the Me Too movement has done for survivors, how churches can respond better when abuse surfaces in their congregations, and why the church, even in her failures, is still worth fighting for. We also get a peek into Mary's incredible career as an author of over 40 books and and talk about how writing has played into her healing. Enjoy this important conversation with Mary DeMuth. Mary, well, welcome to the Worth Your Time podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It's so great to be here. I'm really humbled that you would have me. Thank you. I'd love to start just by um, you telling us a little bit about who you are, where you live, and who the important people are in your life. So I live in the Dallas, Texas area. I'm actually from originally from Seattle, so sometimes I really miss mountains. I've got a husband of 29 years and three adult children in their 20s. And um, yeah, so good life. And we also have a uh, very dysfunctional chocolate lab and <laughs> a very curious kitty cat. <laughs> All right. And uh, you're also a writer, which we're going to talk a lot about that today. You've written 40 books. Is that right? Yeah, I think the numbers now in terms of this year coming out, I think I'm at 42 or 43. Oh, that's amazing. Wow. Well, I want to talk to you today specifically about one of your most recent books, which is called We Too, which um, is a sort of a play on words, of course, of the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement that followed that, um, that sprung up in the past several years. And I think really that you're the right person to write this book because not only as an incredible writer, but also a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Um, I won't ask you to recount your entire backstory here, but I would love to start with this question, which is, how did it feel with your background? How did it feel when the Me Too movement really surfaced several years ago for you? What were your thoughts when you saw all of these women beginning to speak up? Yeah, I, I really felt um, validated. And I've been speaking about this issue to, you know, to basically nothing <laughs> uh, since the 90s. And so I would talk about it and people just wouldn't want to talk about it. It was just one of those things that was never really validated. And so when this started happening, I, I finally thought, oh my goodness, the story is finally being heard. And so there was, and then of course there's the horrified feelings of the scope of it. I knew it going in. I mean, I knew that this, the statistics were terrible, but 
when that happened, I felt like the floodgates opened and all of this trauma came pouring out and my heart just broke for so many people who've had that story. Do you think that it took Hollywood being the ones to sort of lead the way for this to happen? Yep, it, that's exactly it. And it's unfortunate that the church didn't lead the way because it should have. But as we've known in the, at least in the Catholic sexual abuse scandal, that was not the modus operandi of church leaders. It was to quelch and and stiff arm and to squish down and to not talk about. And sadly, that's been the case in the Protestant church as well. Um, I think the tides have deeply turned. I was just at the um, ERLC Caring Well Conference in October, and I think there were, well, there were several thousand, I think it was 3,000, something like that, people there around the issue of, of sexual abuse and how the church can respond to it. And I, the thought occurred to me, I think this is the largest gathering of Christ followers in the history of mankind who are together in one place talking about this issue. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. And I think I've seen, I mean, for the most part, I feel like all around, I see mostly positive reactions to the Me Too movement, just feeling like, yeah, I'm so glad this is out there. I'm so glad people are able to feel free to speak and just so much healing that needs to be done. Um, but did you see resistance in certain places? Did you see resistance in the church when this first came to light? Yes. And the resistance has mainly been, and not all the way, but mainly been in the older generation and the the receptivity has been in the younger generation. I have a lot of hope for the church because it's millennials and Gen Zs who are like, yeah, this can't happen anymore. And we need to talk about trauma and, and all of that. So I did see kind of a dual reaction there. And especially when it came to protecting structures, I feel like um, maybe baby boomers are more in that they have more trust in structures. And then so to tear down a structure is to tear down Christianity in their minds versus um, maybe a more flat view of of it where, no, we can tear down the bad things that that doesn't ruin the structure. It actually enhances it. Do you know the actual origins of the hashtag church to movement? Cause that kind of came a little bit later, but then really caught on and people started on social media, sharing their stories of assault, abuse, or harassment within churches. Do you know how that got started? I, I do, but now I, I don't remember exactly. I wouldn't want to say this is the exact name because um, I would get it wrong. <laughs> so if I don't have it in front of me, but I, it wasn't much longer after me too and um, there was a specific person that started. I just can't recall who it was. But that began a flood of people talking about their own abuse within the church walls and, you know, from leaders in the church particularly. But also people who have said, hey, this happened to me in the church and church leaders didn't do anything about it. And so that was kind of the beginning of that kind of cavalcade of more stories coming out. Well, and so you kind of mentioned the Catholic Church a minute ago, but so many people, yes, they associate, quote, sex scandals in the church with Catholicism. Um, but as it turns out, there's a lot of other kinds of churches that are holding a lot of secrets as well. Um, what was your, I guess, sort of immediate reaction to seeing that that part of it play out? I was not surprised. Um, several years ago, my friend Boz Chavijan, who was the director of a Godly Response to Abuse in Christian Environments, Grace, 
uh, he had written an article or had been interviewed for an article in the early 2000s and someone had asked him the question, you know, well, you know, this is a Catholic problem. And he said very uh, starkly, he said, it's just as bad or worse within the Protestant church. And a lot of people kind of pushed up against that. They're like, no way, that can't be the truth. But it actually is proven to be true. And in some ways, it's harder because it, at least in the Catholic church abuse scandal, there were records. Now, a lot of those were expunged or hidden or whatever, but records existed. Whereas when you have all these independent Protestant churches, it's hard to collaborate even between different churches. And that's why it was easy for perpetrators to move from church to church because there wasn't a lot of communication between those churches. So when, and this might be an obvious question, but when churches do this, when they cover things up, they don't report people to the police, they don't tell the congregation, what's the purpose behind that? Why are they doing that? It's all, I mean, I I don't want to put motivations in people's hearts, but it tends to be uh, protection. They want to protect the reputation of the church. And if you really dig down, it has to do with money. Because if you disclose something horrific like that to your congregation, uh, chances are you're going to lose members and chances are you're going to lose money. And so, I mean, I would hate to just assign that motive to everyone, but I think if you keep peeling back the layers, it's that fear. Because if you're really following Jesus Christ, if you really love him and you really want to be like him, you're going to protect the innocent at any cost. And you will not, flat out will not care about your reputation or protecting the institution. You will really care about protecting the vulnerable in your midst. You will report it to authorities. You will get counseling for the people who have gone through it. You have obviously will fire that person and follow them wherever they go. Um, if they don't get, uh, you know, if they don't go through the court system. Um, I know of people that have done that where they found their abuser and they just kept following them wherever they went and kept alerting churches because there's just no database of this out there. Oh, that's just crazy. Uh, well, during this time that all of this was coming up, we were at the same time watching Rachel Den Hollander um, come forward with the Larry Nasser scandal. She, of course, was the first person to um, publicly accuse him and really led the way for him, you know, getting to where, to where things are today. And one thing that she talks about in her book and that I asked her about on this podcast was, you know, how did she... What made her continue to be so dedicated to the church as a whole? Because she was abused in the church initially Mm -hmm. um, as a young child and then, you know, suffered through the abuse of Nasser later. Um, But I want to ask you the same question, which is, you know, why do you continue to believe the church is worth fighting for? Yeah, it's a terrific question. And I would I guess I would say um, it's worth fighting for because it's the bride of Christ and If you love somebody, you will want what is best for them. And that also involves a prophetic distance and a prophetic voice about what's not going well. And so if you don't love someone, you're not going to confront them on their sin. You're not going to lovingly uh, empower them to be better. But if you love someone, you're going to do those hard things. And that's how I feel about talking about how the church should respond better I'm not bringing that up because I hate the church. I'm bringing it up because I love the church. And um, it's such a, a lot of my healing has actually happened in the church. Now, I understand that there are people out there who have been harmed within the walls of the church, and it's excessively triggering and painful to even 
be able to walk into those four walls. So I, I totally affirm that there are times you have to walk away because of your own mental health. If that's where you were abused, that was not my experience. So I don't have that same, um, story, but, uh, but yeah, I, uh, like I said, when I first really started healing, it was people in the church. It wasn't necessarily the institutional church that helped me, but it was people within the body who just loved me and listened to me and did not shame me and did not try to convince me I didn't have that story, but they prayed for me. And so I know there's a remnant of goodness out there. And let's talk more about bringing those kinds of people to the forefront. The problem is, is in our structure in the United States, Um, Most churches have kind of a leader dominant structure um, and it can tend towards celebrity. And in that celebrity culture, um, if everything is connected to one person, it's hard, especially if that person is a perpetrator, you, you pull that person out and the whole thing falls apart. And so I kind of wonder if God's doing a new work in the congregations of our land to decentralize it a little bit more. I don't know. It's just a thought. No, that's that's interesting because I've been working on some stuff recently about the church and um, just kind of the new iteration of church with church planting. And, and that's a theme that keeps coming up with people I've been interviewing is sort of how can we um, not take away the pastor altogether, but sort of de-emphasize them as the very most important thing about the church. And I've I've, con- I've been continuing to see that sort of trend come up. And, and so that really, that makes a lot of sense that you say that. Um, so in the book that you write about some of the common ways that communities of all kinds, not just churches, can react to these accusations of abuse or assault you know, unexpectedly something, you hear something, um, and it just seems, you know, people just are like, that doesn't seem right. Can you talk about some of the negative reactions, meaning like the wrong ways that people respond to these kinds of accusations? Right. On the personal level, I would say people really don't want to live in a world where this happens. And so their default and the hurtful things that they say are not necessarily meant to be hurtful, but they just simply don't want to believe that those things happen. So they have to minimize. So they'll say things like, are you sure it really happened? Or they'll say insensitive things like that was so long ago. Why aren't you over it now? I mean, that was 25 years ago. Why are you still bothered by it? You know, the old has gone, the new has come. There's all sorts of Christian cliches that can be thrown at you. Um, And so I think those kinds of cliched answers are really not helpful. Um, when it comes to church leadership structure, uh, when a church leader brings in someone who's been perpetrated against, and then they also bring in the perpetrator into the same room and talk, start talking about a forgiveness narrative, it's really abusive. And I would say that nobody gets to dictate your forgiveness journey. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. I think it's an amazing thing to go through a forgiveness journey, but Some person outside the situation does not get to tell you that right now in this moment, while you're facing your person that deeply wounded you, you have to forgive them. It's just, it's, um, it's awful. And I, and I cannot believe it still happens. Yeah. I think Rachel said in our interview, she said she called that weaponizing forgiveness. I thought that was, yeah, I think that's well said. Yeah. Pretty powerful way to put it. Um, you talk in your book, your memoir, uh, is the thin place. I'm saying that right. Correct. 
Thin places. Yeah. Thin places. Sorry, I was very close. Um, so close. You talk about in your book about you know you you told one person when you were a child and that person did not help you and so it wasn't for another decade that you told someone else uh, and that's a similar story that you hear from a lot of people. Why? Let's. I just want for people listening. Why do, do people either not tell at all or shut down after telling one person? Uh, when one person doesn't believe them? What is it that makes people keep it to themselves? Well, I would say if it is a child, what I did was excessively rare. And I'm not trying to promote myself or say I'm awesome or anything. I just, it was really rare that a child would make an outcry in the moment. Um, it did take me some time to make the outcry, but uh, it's it's pretty rare. Most people, if they have been sexually abused as children, don't start even thinking about telling until late 20s, but I think the average is around in your 40s. And so that's why we need to talk about statute of limitations because when you have a 10 to 15 year statute of limitations, no sexual predator will ever get caught because people typically typically don't disclose. There's a lot of reasons for that. I think a lot of it has to do, especially if you're a child, you don't have the capability to do it. You don't even have language around it. You're not even sure if it's wrong. You just know it doesn't feel right and it's raw, you know, just something's off about it, but you may not even have the language or you don't have the maturity to understand what in the world is going on. Um, plus, there's always the threats. And so for me, it was the threat of we will kill your parents. And of course, as a good little girl, I wasn't going to be the demise of my parents, but it got to the place where I felt like I was going to be killed. And so I had to tell someone for my own sake. Now, when someone discloses and they're not believed, I mean, I, it took another 10 years, which again, is still very rapid. 15 years old when I told again, um, is really unusual. And, um, most people would just keep it quiet for decades. Um, and so, but it's very common that if you're not believed the first time, you just think, well, I must be crazy or this is what I deserve or this is just how my life is like now. And, or I, my, in my thought process, it was not one human on the whole wide world will ever protect me or love me. I will have to take care of myself. And so that kind of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, uh, that has stayed with me these many years. <laughs> and the other kind of part that plays into that is that people don't, a lot of times people don't have clear memories, especially if it's a long right. time later, but even if it's not, there's just a lot of details are very, very fuzzy. And I feel like that gets held against people as well. And, and there's got to be, I mean, there is a psychological reason for that. Do you know anything about why that happens? This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At BOW, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. 
it's all because of trauma. And, you know, you'll see it if someone's in a car accident, you'll see that a lot of times their memory is erased um, from like the moment right prior to the accident to moments after the accident, like your brain just shuts it down. And that's part of our defense mechanism of survival of, of being able to keep moving on because it's so bad. A lot of people will have um, recovered memories where they will have kept it, you know, not they didn't purposely do this, but it was a it was a memory that was hidden way down deep. And then eventually later in their life, something will trigger it and things come flooding out. And, um, of course there are, you know, things that happen in the eighties about false memories and all of that and people planting memories. I, I think we really have to err on the side of belief of someone that discloses a story because those are excessively rare. And also what's excessively rare is false accusation. So I mm. think it's less, less than 5%. And if there is an accu accusation, we can be assured that it will go through a process where people who are skilled in investigation will uncover whether it's true or not. Now, I'm not saying that that's not devastating, but it's very rare. And so that's why we should err on the side of belief if someone discloses to us. Yeah, I think so many times people think of those rare cases that were in the news, like the Duke lacrosse players come to mind when I think of that. Right, right. And like that happened and that was horrific. But like, like you're right, it's not common. It's not the norm. And so um, that reminds me also of... Um, the show and the book Unbelievable. Did you see mm -hmm. or read that? Yes, yes. <laughs> that was amazing and difficult to watch. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, what what do you think? I mean, I feel like that show really got a lot of um, talk cultural-wise. Um, what do you think that did for the conversation by them putting that out there and it really getting giving people really maybe the their first look at how this can break down in a bad way? Yeah, first of all, I would think that the Linwood police would be very sad about how they how they handled that situation because it was so egregious. And but what I loved about it was they it was such a beautiful contrast between what was going on in Colorado and how a trauma informed response differed almost violently from the wrong kind of response. And and the contrast of those two is very instructive. And I would hope that, um, it, at least in police jurisdictions, they studied that film. Mm -hmm. And they began to see that um, you cannot think rationally necessarily about trauma. Like when we think about telling a story, we think about, well, here's the first part of the story, here's the middle, and here's the end. Trauma fragments a memory, and you can't necessarily tell the story from A to Z. It comes out in little pockets of memory. And just because it happens that way does not mean it's not true. And we have to be kind-hearted and gentle and trauma-informed in the way that we um, elicit responses from people who have experienced sexual trauma. Yeah, and it makes you wonder, like, how much specialized training are people getting on this? And hopefully this whole uh, kind of cultural conversation has given people an incentive to add more of that to, you know, police officers and all kinds of anyone that's dealing with, with, with these kinds of things. Um, so just one last question about the church. What is the best thing to do? What, what's the best response for the church to have if this happens? Um, when I talk to churches and leadership about this, the first thing I say is you need to have a proactive list of how you will respond. Um, I know there's lots of nuance and different kinds of things that happen, 
But there, that way, you it's kind of like um, a married couple having a budget. When you have a budget, you can kind of blame the budget on things, and and that becomes your guide instead of like turning on each other. And same way, if you have a list of first, we will if there is a disclose, uh, you know, disclosure of abuse of a minor. We will immediately report it to the authorities. Now, that doesn't say, well, but if they're a pastor in our church or if it. No, it's just that is how it happens. And then after that, it would be, um, you know, however the church has decided to do it, but it may be counseling or finding resources for the person, uh, just holding a press conference, disclosing the abuse to the media, however they want to have that list. But that having that proactive way of this is how we will deal with it when it comes versus I think what happens most of the time is, at least in the pre-Me Too era, is it just kind of slapped people in the face and leadership had to do a knee-jerk reaction rather than a proactive reaction. Yeah, I think this is really going to... I mean, most of the time, I'm sure churches just don't expect that anything like that's going to happen. But I think this is probably really just making it, hey, this is this is happening, giving people preparation, making them think about it. I, I can imagine that it's been, overall, it's been a positive thing for the church to have to think about proactively. Um, you mentioned the ERLC conference. What is ERLC doing um, specifically to sort of advocate for this? Right. So we had that conference. There was a lot of speakers, a lot of information for sure. And as I looked at um, what's going to happen at the Southern Baptist Convention this next year, they're still visiting that issue. It's not top of mind anymore, but it's still there. And they did pass a resolution last year about um, dealing with this. And also, I think what they've done is from what I remember is that they, if a church has been found violating the the best practices of how to deal with abuse, particularly within their midst, um, that they could be censured and kicked out of the SBC. And so that's, um, that's kind of, you know, where they're at. And that's an important thing to watch because uh, Southern Baptists are the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. And so as they go, perhaps other denominations will go as well. I've been asked by other denominations um, for some expertise as well. And so it's really heartening to see that people are beginning to say, we do need to proactively deal with this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so bringing it back specifically to your personal story, um, obviously you're a Christian um, and you count on your website, you say loving Jesus is one of the most important things about you. Um, I know you cannot cover this in a one minute response, but <laughs> um, how were you able ultimately to get through what you went through uh, without blaming God or holding a grudge against him for not being there for you in that time? Yeah. So for anyone listening out there who has a similar story, I, I just want them to hear me when I say this has been a really long journey of healing. It wasn't like one day I woke up and I was like, oh, I'm totally healed now. And I totally trust God with everything in my life. Um, I met Christ at 15 and uh, that began my healing journey. The lion's share of uh, the healing happened in college where I just cried for four years and Christians loved me enough to pray for me. Um, but every year there's a new level of unpacking the trauma and, you know, even coming to the point where there was so much layer to my trauma that um, I didn't even for years didn't even realize that my father was my primary abuser. And it's been a rough time untethering the layers or unteasing the layers of my father's sexual deviance, addiction and abuse. 
And so that's what I've been working on lately. Um, in terms of Jesus, uh, because I was in such a rough place when I met him, I was very suicidal. I was at the end of my rope. I, I, I was ready to die. Um, he was my rescuer from that situation. And so for me, it wasn't like I had grown up in the church and all of this happened within the church, although the two boys that molested me were Mormons. Um, I, I, so it wasn't, it's not something that was ingrained in me in the church. So Jesus was my rescue. So I have a little bit different of a story, but absolutely just to answer a little quickly, quicklier, <laughs> that's not a word, but um, I would say, I absolutely have asked the question, where were you when this happened? And I, as a mom, I have been furious because as a mom, if I knew that my kids were being abused by someone, if I had knowledge of it, this mama bear would jump in and protect her kids. So if I love my kids and God loves me more than I love my kids, then why didn't he intervene? And I have all sorts of theological things that I've wrestled through to figure that out, but I'm still not quite satisfied with the answer and I'm still holding it in tension. And I know that I will fully understand it on the other side. Um, but right now it's still a tension that exists. And I just kind of want to say that to give people a little bit of peace, because I think a lot of us think, well, if I think that about God, if I'm angry at him, um, then something's wrong with me. But I just want to say it's really normal to feel that way. Okay. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and it seems like I'm going to transition a little bit to your writing career. It seems like writing has probably been very therapeutic for you. Uh, you've been a writer for a long time. How did you get into that? I mean, how did you become a writer? And did you ever imagine that you'd be sitting here uh, so many years later with this many books under your belt? No, I certainly did not imagine that. Um, but I did, I think writing saved me in a way. Um, growing up in the home that I did, I grew up with a narcissistic parent and one who didn't, who gaslit a lot. And so my writing was to save my sanity. I would write down what the parent would say. And then the next day they would say, I didn't say that. And then I would go back to my journal and be like, oh yes, you did. But I wouldn't hold it. I was never a mean person like that, but it was just good for my own sanity. When I was in second grade, a teacher said a comment to my mom that I was a good writer and that stayed with me for a really long time. I graduated from college with an English degree, was an English teacher for a while. But when I had my first child in 1992, I, there was something about giving birth to a child that I just thought I have to write. I have to write. And so I spent a decade in the 90s just becoming um, a better and better writer. There was no real internet then. There was no blogging. None of that was happening. I was just writing in obscurity millions of words that never were published. And it wasn't until the early 2000s that I began to get serious and found an agent and started publishing around 2004. Wow. So you were just like writing in a, were you writing by hand or by computer all those years? Writing, writing by computer in obscurity. And I was writing articles and, um, sometimes they would be published very rarely would they be. And I would give myself deadlines and I would say like, okay, you've got to write a 500 piece, 500 word essay by next Tuesday at five. But then I would make sure that I finished it on Monday. So I would train myself to be a fast writer. And that has always stuck with me. All of that training, all that obscurity has fueled my ability now to write very fast. 
And, you know, obviously to be a regularly published author, you have to sort of find your audience. So how were you able to sort of find your readers? It's interesting because I started off only as a novelist. And um, if you peel back the layers of me, you'll see a storyteller underneath. And so um, that's how I started. That's how I got my agent. But the agent then began to see that I was writing about parenting issues in a newspaper column. And the agent said, you should write parenting books, which if you know me, you would just start laughing because I felt so insecure. Every mom does. Like, who thinks they're an awesome mom? Um, and so I and I was so broken about parenting. I had no example. I was raised by wolves. I didn't know how to do it. And so my parenting method was get on my knees, cry a lot and pray a lot. And and so that ended up fueling the beginning of my nonfiction career, writing for parents. But it never really was that wasn't really my niche. I really wanted to talk about healing and Jesus. And so as things morphed, that my audience shifted more toward spiritual growth, healing, and um, falling in love with Jesus. And so my latter works, um, and there's more of those than the first, uh, are about that. Uh, so you may or may not remember this, but a, a couple of years ago when I emailed you, you you had reviewed my book in Christianity Today, and yeah. um, I had emailed you about something, and you said something that's really stuck with me. It, it, I may not be saying it exactly right, but it was something like, don't write a book unless you can't not write the book. Yeah. <laughs> and I've always thought about that because, you know, as I consider my next potential book, you know, I've been thinking, well, I don't want to write this unless, you know, it's something that I really feel like needs to be written. So uh, with so many books that you've done, how do you know it's the book that needs to be written inside yourself? Right. So currently I'm, I'm in a season of sabbatical for a couple months. And so I'm actually re-asking that question. But typically what has happened is I will be so angry about something it's kind of the prophetic side of my writing that I can't help but write it. And that goes for nonfiction and fiction. There was um, one of the series I wrote, the Defiance Texas Trilogy, which is fiction, was about abuse of power in leadership in churches. And we had experienced that when we were church planters in France, but I, I still can't write publicly about what happened. And so not because I'm afraid, but just it's just not the right thing to do at this point. And um, but I was able to write a no three novels about abuse of power, and I couldn't not write those books because I was so upset about what was going on in these church structures. Um, and so that's it. It has to keep you up at night. It has to be and, – and you cannot look at what's out there because there's always other books out there about your thing. No, there's nothing new under the sun, but mm -hmm. the question becomes, are you – are you woken up by the Lord at night? Are you on your knees about this issue? Does this issue bother you so much or compel you toward, or maybe every time you've talked about it, people have said, I need to hear more about that. Or maybe you've written a blog about it and it went viral. I mean, there's just those kinds of things that are indications that you should probably write that book. And and when you, when that happens to you, do you, um, do you pitch the book first or you just start writing the book? I, uh, even though I'm multi-published, I still write a proposal. So I typically will talk about the idea to my agent and maybe the publisher I've been working with lately and ask them first if they think it's worth merit. If they do think it is interesting for them, then I will write the proposal and they'll take it to committee and say yes or no. And then we go on from there. Uh, so I know authors don't love this question, but do you have a favorite out of all of them? 
Of authors? No, of your oh. own books. Oh. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's like naming your favorite child. I know, that's what uh, I heard. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would say the book that best represents my heart is Thin Places, the memoir, mm-hmm. and probably show, showcases my storytelling abilities. The one that I'm most proud of in terms of that took the most out of me and the most guts was We Too. Mm. And that's why I'm taking a sabbatical right now because it, 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 it flattened me. Um, it took everything out of me to write and promote that book. And so I'm trying to regroup now. Okay. Um, speaking of other authors, do you have, uh, who do you like to read or who do you enjoy reading people that inspire you? What kinds of books inspire you? Um, that kind of a thing. Yeah, I'm kind of a weird businessy nerd. So lately I've been reading a lot of businessy type books. Um, my favorite one of the last year was Atomic Habits by James Clear. Such a great book about that. Our life is basically, it consists of our habits and what we choose to do every day. It's really unglamorous, but it is where the rubber meets the road in our lives. Um, and then I just, I love, of course, I love good fiction. Um, I'm partial to, I just keep going back to, to kill a mockingbird. It's, <laughs> it's like a classic that I can't seem to get over. So I, I go back to some of those. Okay. All right. Well, I've just got a few end of podcast questions, uh, which I sent you. So hopefully you had a chance to look over those. Um, What is a goal that you have for yourself in the next five to 10 years? Um, I would say screenplay. And that's something I'm dusting off this year. And I'm going to start writing screenplays. Very cool. Uh, On something on like a book you've already written or something new? Yes, I have a, um, some of my fiction, has, I've gotten the rights back, and so I'll be screenplaying those. Oh, that's exciting. Um, okay, who would you have dinner with? If you could have dinner with anybody, who would it be and why? Well, of course, it would be Jesus. But, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, as we're recording this today, it's Martin Luther King Day, and he would be somebody I would want to have uh, dinner with. And just to just to see how he persevered through trial. Um, when you're on the front lines of a social issue like he was, the the barbs and the attacks are incredible. And um, I, I would just like to hear how he endured that. Mm, that's a great answer. And you just mentioned a book that you read, but I always have to ask people, favorite book that you've read recently and or podcasts that you're enjoying? I will say I am fascinated and in, in, I am in love with the Bible Project podcast. Mm, okay. uh, that the way that they tease out scripture and they basically make you think of the Bible as a giant hyperlinked book <laughs> where you can see the grand narrative, but then you also see all of the beautiful patterns of scripture. And it's just, I've always loved the Bible, but it has caused me to fall in love with the Bible even more. It's been such a blessing. Oh, that's really cool. I've been doing, I've been doing the Bible recap. If <laughs> you've heard of that one, um, have you heard of Tara Lee Cobble? I haven't. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, she has just sort of a, she, she's really into the chronological Bible and then she does like a short recap every day and it really helps tie it together. But that one sounds really, really cool as well. Um, all right, Mary. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and just 
there's a lot of really good stuff in here that I think people need to hear. So I just really appreciate your time. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.